We're going to read from several chapters in Job today, from chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and a portion from chapter 42. So be ready to turn to those quickly. We will just go from one to the next. Chapter 1, 2, and one verse from chapter 3, and then a short, uh, short section from chapter 42. Sweet Communion, we've used the ESV, so if you are following along with me, you can listen as I read. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to read Job chapters 1 and 2 in their entirety, entirety, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and then chapter 42, 1 through 11. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would, he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon, your, fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, 
skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 11. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each one of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. We pause here in this reading of God's word. Today we'll be looking back at our study in Job and looking at lessons, the things that we should learn from this study in Job. And I pray that that be fruitful for you, fruitful for me. It has been already as I study this and look forward to living it out in my own life. I ask you to remain standing with me. We're going to bow for a word of prayer. After prayer, you'll be seated then, and then we'll hear the preaching of God's word today. And then after the sermon, we have a special song from our choir that will end our service then. Please bow with me now in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to come together and to worship. We thank you for those who are here present, and we thank you for those who are watching, um, viewing over Facebook and the internet. We pray as your word goes out that you would minister to your people. You would encourage, you would challenge, you would rebuke sin, you would point people to their only salvation, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for each one here. We thank you for those who could not be here today. We pray for those who have been afflicted in our midst. Lord, we continue to, to, to think of them and to pray for each one, asking you to remember them, that your comfort and, and your healing will go out to them and that they might continue to be a testimony 
uh, to their families and to their friends of your goodness and of your grace and how they are steadfast trusting in you for all that they have and all that they need. We just pray now that you would bless this work, bless your people in it, allow us to continue to bring forth your word and to live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So for me, our study in Job has been a challenging study and a very fruitful study at the same time. And today I want to wrap up our study with looking at what we learned from this book. Let's just go through some highlights in Job very quickly. We read several portions just to give us a, a, a little uh, reminder and to summarize some of the things that happened in the book of Job. We started with chapter 1 and 2, so we read those. You saw the character and the wealth of Job. But you also saw Satan's attack and Job's response. Um, and so after that, we also saw in chapter 3, verse 1, Job's lament. Let me read that again. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. That's important because he did not curse God. He did not sin with his mouth towards God. But what he did is he lamented the day that God brought him to earth. And we were reminded that we can go through such pain and such sorrow in this life that we can wish, in effect, that we had never been born. And that's what Job did. He did not uh, have an attitude to commit suicide. That's not something that's a sin uh, against God. But he did... Well, he was so overburdened in sorrow that he wished that he hadn't experienced what he had experienced. And if, if it could be all erased, he was hoping or wished that it could be. But it couldn't. And yet he vents or he expresses that lament. In chapter 4, we see the three friends come into picture. Job is going to interact with these three friends. Each one is going to challenge Job in something, and Job is going to respond to each one, and that be round one. And they're going to do three rounds of that, each friend getting a chance to speak, and Job responding to each friend. I want to just review round one to just get a glimpse of what's happening in this dialogue with his three friends. Um, chapter 4, verse 1. Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, so Eliphaz begins to speak here. Verse 7, we can see his accusation. This is chapter 4, verse 7. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Eliphaz is saying to Job, look, man, you're going through this stuff. It's nobody innocent goes through stuff like this. Now, he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong. But this is the counsel that his friends are giving. And I wanted to, to just remind ourselves of what he's saying here. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. It says, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now here he's correct. <laughs> he's right. He says, you know, none of us can stand perfectly innocent and righteous before God. And so he's saying, therefore, Job, you must have sinned to bring this about. That's where he was wrong. None of us can stand in our own righteousness before God, but Job had not done a specific or individual sin that brought this on. He just didn't understand why it was happening. That's a comfort to us. We don't always know what's going on. We don't always know what God is doing. And so we see that. Look at Job's response in chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. We took a look at those verses. This is his response to his first friend in round one. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. <laughs> Job is saying, this is a time you should be comforting me. But you're just mean. You're just nasty. You're making accusations that aren't true. And so he challenges his friends because uh, they weren't right. Verse 15 says, my brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrent, torrential streams that pass away. It's interesting, this week we had a lot of rain. And what Job is saying, my friends who are supposed to be friends are flooding me <laughs> with accusations and, and they're unfounded. He says, it's like a storm that comes. It just comes real quickly and does a lot of damage. 
He said, that's, that's what my friends are like. The second friend that speaks is Bildad in chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. We'll look at that. Again, we're just getting a, an over, quick overflow, uh, overview of the book of Job. Chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? So Bildad is saying basically the same thing that Eliphaz is saying. It says, hey, you, you are, are speaking, you know, out of the side of your head, basically, he's saying. He says, you're blowing smoke. He says, you, God only does what is right. He doesn't pervert justice. Bildad is incorrect in what he is trying to say as well. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8. He says this. If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. He's basically urging Job to repent. Job, you're suffering. You're going through problems. Repent. You know, some people come to church like that. They say, you know, I'm going to go to church today because if I go to church, then my day is going to be good. Then my week is going to be good. God's going to give me that job. God's going to give me that boyfriend, that girlfriend. God's going to give me that car, that house. If I just go to church, things are going to be good. And Bildad is basically saying, man, Job, if you just repent, bad things will stop happening. And that's just not true. First of all, he's wrong in what Job should repent of. Job has not done a sin to bring this on. And serving God is no guarantee that we won't go through trials. That's where they are mistaken in their advice. All right, Job's reply is in chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. He says, truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? See, Job agrees that, yeah, you know, I know who God is, I know what he's doing, and I don't claim to, to be in the right. But then he says this, verse thir- 3, If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He says, I'm, I haven't sinned, but how can I battle God in this discussion? In chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, he continues that thought. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. (laughs) Job uh, uses an interesting line of logic. Um, He's saying, look, I I can't go into God's courtroom and plead innocence. I haven't done anything to bring these things on, but... I'm a man. How can I stand before God? You know, we all face that. Some people think that they can just get so righteous that they can stand in the presence of God. Let me tell you something. None of us can do that. We need someone to represent us. And so Job goes into that in chapter 9, verse 32 and 35. Listen to what he says. For For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him. He's speaking of God, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. He said, I got no chance in coming up into God's courtroom and making my case before him. What makes me think he's got to listen to me? And who's going to hold, what higher court is going to hold him accountable so that he listens to me? You see, if you have a, 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 an issue with another person, you can go to the court, and it's the, the authority of that court who can affect both people. The court basically is saying, look, if I judge you to be wrong, you are going to be responsible for the, the punishment that I decree. And you will carry, I will carry that out against you, whichever party that is. So both parties submit themselves to this higher authority, and the higher authority makes a judge judgment. Job is saying, what higher authority do I have if I have an issue with God? There is none. I have nothing to respond or, or play. I need someone who can represent me before God. The third friend, Zophar, speaks in chapter 11. In verse 2, he begins to make his case against Job. 
11 verse 2, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? He begins to speak. Verse 4 through verse 6, he says, for you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts on you less than your guilt deserves. Zophar is saying, he's saying it wrongly. Zophar is saying to Job, you deserve more than you got. In other words, you've done way worse than what God is judging you for. Now, why is he wrong? Because God hasn't judged Job. We can see from the beginning of the book, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Look, look what a spotless character he is. And Zophar is saying, no, Job, you deserve even worse than what you got based on something you've done that you're just not saying. He's wrong. He's wrong in judging Job for, for that which he does not know. We're going to get to that in a bit. Uh, we can see Job's reply in chapter 13, verse 15. <clears throat> I love this part. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job maintains his innocence, but he also maintains his faith that God is going to see him through this. Chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I, will, service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Job is saying, oh, God, if it was possible, if you could just hide me in the grave till all of this trial, all of this hardship pass, I wouldn't have to experience it. And then I look forward to the resurrection when I'm raised from the dead and spend eternity with you. Job maintained his faith. He was looking for relief from his trouble, but he also maintained that he had done nothing specifically that brought this on. And so we see the major issue that the book of Job deals with is why do the righteous suffer? Do they, in fact, are they judged by God? Is that why they suffer? What they go through is Job suffering because of some personal sin in his life. Well, let's look at what the book of Job teaches. We're going to look at four areas that it teaches. The first thing, what does the book of Job teach us about God? We're going to simplify some of this, but we're going to summarize what the book of Job teaches. First of all, what does the book of Job teach us about God? God, turn to chapter 42, verse 2. We looked at last week, and this is what Job summarized what he learned from God speaking to him. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is all-powerful, Job has learned. Now, he knew that before, but it takes a little different twist here. God is all-powerful. Secondly, God is in control. When it says there is no purpose of yours that can be thwarted. God will be sure to accomplish all he intends to accomplish. In that sense, we should never say God is trying to do something. You know, trying as if it's hard for him and he might not do it. You know, I tried to run the marathon. I tried to do this. God is not really trying to do anything. He accomplishes everything he sets out to accomplish. So it's a comfort to know that he's in full control, he's all-powerful, and he's going to do all that he intends to do. Nothing stops him from that. I wrote it this way. His sovereign rule accomplishes his gracious purpose for his glory and our ultimate gladness. His sovereign rule accomplishes his gracious purpose for his glory and our ultimate gladness. A couple things we learn about God in addition to that. 
God admires Job. We see that in chapter 1. He says to Satan, you consider my servant Job? Have you checked him out? He says it again in chapter 2. Have you considered my servant Job? He loves and he admires Job. Now, we're struck with the challenge within. Why does he bring about this on Job? He loves Job. God gives blessings. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. God gives blessings. We can see that obviously in Job's life. But God also gives trials. I noticed two times Job says this. In chapter 2, verse 10, when his wife tells him, you ought to just curse God so that you can die, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Then he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognized, and we ought to recognize, that God gives. He gives blessings. God also gives trials, hardships, difficulty, suffering, and pain. God doesn't just blame that on Satan. He says, no, 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 I'm in control, and that bring that about. Now, some of us struggle with that because we know that, and so we are mad at God. But he's brought things into our life. Well, my first question is, what are you going to do with that? You can be mad at God all your life. You're not getting anywhere with that. We need to recognize God's sovereignty, but as Job is, you recognize, even though you don't understand, it's for God's glory, and it is for our gladness. We learn about God. God tests his saints for his glory, for our strengthening, and for Satan's shame. You know what God does? He says to Satan, come here, man. Come here, come, come here, come here a second. Satan comes, right? He said, what you been up to? And Satan answers. Satan gives account to God. Now, he reminds me of the shiftless of giving that answer. You know, ask people, where you going, man? And they tell you where they coming from. Man, I'm coming from down the street, down yonder. I've been walking. No, I didn't ask you where you coming from. I asked you where you going. Shiftless answer. But God asks, what you been doing? I've been walking to and fro, up and down, all over the earth. He actually has to answer to God. God calls him to give account. God is in control. And he says to him, have you considered my servant Job? And certainly he has. And he says, in essence, I ain't been able to get to him because you protected him. And God says, that's right. I'm in control. And when I protect one, they're protected. When I take off my protection, they're vulnerable. God is in control. And he says to Satan, all right, let's do this test. Go at him. You can affect anything that he has, all of his possessions. And Satan did that because Satan claimed that if he did that, Job would stop trusting God. He would no longer love God. He would no longer serve God. God allowed Job to be tested. And he did that, as I said, for his glory, for our strengthening, for Job's strengthening, and for Satan's shame. God loves to shame Satan, and I love that about him. He says, Satan, you're a liar. You ain't all that, and you can't do all that you claim to do. You know, Satan is an intimidator. And intimidators often use words and threats that they can't always pull off. Or if they can, they don't really want to risk all the energy and all the effort it will take to do what they threaten to do. Somebody got to call them out. God calls them out. And he shames them. He says, oh, you can throw everything you can at him, but he is still my servant. Let's look at another category. What do we learn about our friends and comfort and counsel from the book of Job? 
first thing I want to mention here we learned from the book of Job is that God uses human beings to act in his behalf to comfort and counsel us. I want to say that again. This is very important. That's why you're here today. You know, people want to say, hey, I can just watch this on the Internet, and I don't have to interact personally with people. And people, because of the pandemic we've been going through, think that church has ended. They don't need church anymore because they have the Internet, and they can just do things that way. I'm going to remind you of this truth. Let me read it again. God uses human beings to act in his behalf to comfort and counsel us. He used Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's three friends, to counsel and to comfort Job. Now, they did a poor job at counseling and comforting Job. You can see it was God's intent that they do it rightly because at the end of the story we read in chapter 42, God says to, 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 uh, uh, to uh, it was Zophar, I'm sorry, the first one, Eliphaz, he says to him, my anger burns against you because you have not spoken what is right concerning me. In other words, God gave him a job to do, and that was to counsel and to comfort Job with words from God that would help him in his state, in his circumstances, in his condition right then, and they failed to do that. It lets me know that God uses human beings to bring comfort and to bring counsel to us. And oftentimes we turn them off. I ain't got to listen to you. Now, people don't say that. They don't normally say that to my face. But what they think is, that's optional. Yeah. <laughs> right? I ain't got to do that. In other words, God ain't speaking there, and I ain't got to obey. Now, I'm not telling you that what I say is God. What I'm saying is God uses human beings to express to you, his comfort and counsel. And when you isolate yourself from those human beings, you are isolating yourself from the comfort and counsel that God intended for you. Think about it. God brings a little human being into the world with two comforters and counselors, mom and dad. He didn't just say, hey, just grow up on your own, figure things out. I'm going to bring you two who love you and what happens in our family when that breaks down, we also break down with counsel, comfort and counsel. But God intends that through human beings. So he uses these three men. He uses a fourth that does a better job. Elihu, we talked about before, who does a better job. He's not perfect, but he does a better job of both counseling Job and comforting Job. And then we see through the whole, whole book, God steps in himself, and he speaks directly to Job. But I want you to know that God uses human beings. That's why you're here today, to hear from the Word of God, from a person of God, to interact with the people of God, so you don't shut your life off from everybody else because God is using them to speak to you. Are you listening? Or do you just fluff them off? I ain't got to listen to that. You will be wise to listen because that's how God is working. God uses his word. God uses his Holy Spirit. God uses his people and God uses circumstances. All of these are pressing in, us to, in on us to speak to us. Thus saith the Lord. I want you to notice, those who you have gone through the study with us, realize that these three friends use, use many phrases from the Word of God that sound true. They just use them inappropriately. We'll get to that in a moment. So what does God's Word here in Job teach us about friends and counsel and comfort? Look at Job chapter 6, verse 14. We read this, Job says to his friends, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He's saying, y'all haven't been what God intended you to be to me. 
in that same chapter, verse, chapter 6, verse 25, how forceful are upright words. What does reproof from you, from you reprove? God intends you to use your speech to interact with your friends in a way that helps them. When I was young and I was growing up, I had older brothers, one younger brother and had an older sister. My older sister taught me something. She said, you know what? Watch the people you hang out. She says, she taught me this. She said, you know, I am, I am the most, what did she say? I, she's like, I'm the most rebel or rebellious of the people that I hang out with. Because I don't want them to influence me for evil. I make sure the people around me are thinking that same or less. So they temper me and not pull me into something that I shouldn't be pulled into. Watch out who you hang out with because they will influence you. In chapter 16, verse 2, we all know this one. Job says, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. He says to his friends, y'all don't do a good job of what you should be doing. <laughs> now, all of us can relate to that in some way or form. <laughs> but God intends us to be in community with each other. And God gives us a responsibility to be the right voice to those around us. Not just say what they want to hear, but to counsel as well as comfort. Do them both. Let's go on with that. Another thing we learn about friends, comfort and counsel. Let me say it this way. Saying what is generally true is not good enough. We must say what is appropriate. Job's friends were saying things that in general, God judges the wicked and the wicked keep walking that way and God's going to destroy them. Well, that was generally true, but it wasn't appropriate towards Job. It didn't apply to Job's life at all. They missed the whole point talking to Job. So what we find out is if you don't know God's word and how God works, it's hard for you to help somebody else. And you're going to lead them astray. You need to learn God's word. You need to live God's word. And you also need to communicate that with others. We have a lot of people who are willing to communicate. But they haven't learned and lived for themselves. And so they have very little to really be helpful with. Job's friends had a lot up here. But at the end of it, God says, you're not communicating what's right concerning me. So it's important not just that we share general truths and tell people stuff, but that we look, if we're going to counsel, to say what is appropriate for their condition, their situation of what God says. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, we say, hey, don't try this at home, right? <laughs> don't just go and try this by yourself. Don't, don't just go willy-nilly and just start giving advice to people, thinking you know. Learn and practice for yourself. And then speak what God says. In chapter 2, verse 11, we learn this. Sometimes silence is better than empty words. Sometimes silence is better than empty words. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they, each, they came each from his own place. They made an appointment together to, to come to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. It says, verse 13, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. It's not always the time to speak, is it? Sometimes it's a time for silence. Sometimes we don't know what to say, and sometimes we shouldn't say anything. Nothing wrong with silence. We get very uncomfortable sometimes with silence, and we think we need to fill that void. Maybe we should be praying at that time, God, show me what to say, what not to say, when to say it, and when not to say it. That's important. True, here's the third thing we learn here. True 
It's actually the fourth thing. The first thing we say, God used human beings to act in his behalf to comfort and counsel us. Second thing was saying what is generally true is not good enough. We must say what is appropriate. The third thing, sometimes silence is better than empty words. And here's the fourth thing. True counsel teems with comfort and both come from God. True counsel teems with comfort and both come from God. What God's given us responsibility as friends is to comfort and counsel, to counsel and comfort, and both of those things come from God. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. That counsel, helping a person in where they should go, what they should do, that comes from God. He shall direct your paths. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I want to turn there and read that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He's the God of all comfort. He's the Father of mercies. True comfort comes from God. So often I hear people would tell a friend something that just sounds nice because they think it feels good. But we need to share what is true comfort, that which comes from God. We need to counsel with comfort in mind. We need to comfort with counsel in mind. They team together. They both go together. James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That's in, in relation to us going through trials, going through hardships. Let's seek God for wisdom. You make a good choice in being here today and seeking God. We never get to the point where we say, hey, I got enough. I don't need that no more. I can turn that off. I ain't got to listen to that anymore. We seek counsel from God. He gives that counsel. That's why we read God's word on a regular basis. I want to read it so that I don't just get swept away in the world's, in society and culture's thinking, but I'm able to think as God would have me to think, a fresh thought that's renewed by God's word and his thought. The last thing here about what we learn about friends and comfort and counsel is that God comforts by refocusing our attention on him instead of our circumstances. You know when God speaks in, in, in this book, in chapters 38 through 41, he basically says this. He, you know, Job, where were you when I did this, when I did He's reminding Job of what, what he has done and who he is. He's saying, Job, look at me. Marvel at me. There is none like me. God is saying that. He's saying, give your attention to me. What he's saying is you're going to find comfort is when you begin to focus on God and who he is and less focus on who you are and the problems that you have. It's not that you ignore your problems. It's that you begin to focus on God, and he helps you work through. You notice in, in the whole book of Job, if you go in there for, for answers to specific questions, you're going to find that God doesn't answer a lot of Job's questions. In fact, Job doesn't even ask God any questions when he comes face to face. What God does, though, is he says this. Look at me. Look at me. Focus on me. I see my grandchildren when they, when they get a hurt, you know what they do? They, they go, ow. And then they look at it and they say, bleed, and they go, ah! Right? You know how that is. It's like it doesn't hurt anymore. You just saw what was going on, right? And so what I do is I get their attention. And I talk to them. And I begin to talk to them. And slowly, they, 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 they go from here to here. 
When I can get them to do that, and I can take this and begin to, 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 to do some soothing with it, but just the fact that you get their attention to go from here to here, a whole thing changes. A whole thing changes. God gets our attention to go from what we are struggling with because we're going to be overwhelmed with it. He says, I'm not overwhelmed with it. I made you. <laughs> I put you in this situation so that you will look to me. Look to me. One thing I noticed in, 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 in the book of Job, God does not condemn Job for lamenting the situation that he's in. What he does is points him to himself. I know you're struggling, Job. I know this is hard for you. Look at me. That's why we pray sometimes. Remember when my, my wife was in the hospital and you just don't know what to do and you just begin to pray. And, and as you pray, you begin to focus more on God. God, I'm in trouble, but God, I thank you. You've been through this before. You knew I was going to go through this. You, knew, you know what she's going through. And God, you are our help. You are our hope. We look to you. What does this teach us about faith? A couple things I want to summarize. Is this, the wicked often prosper and the righteous often suffer. Yeah, I said that right. The wicked often prosper and the righteous often suffer. You know, we got to like get that in our head. Because we've been taught, hey, if you do right, if you do good, things are going to go well with you. And that's just not the way life works all the time. There's no guarantee that things go well just because you do right and do good. The Bible reminds us of the backwardness or the... the the messed up world that we live in. And reminds us that we need to persevere. We need to persevere through hardships. If I was to ask the question, how many of you never had a hardship? <laughs> you wouldn't get a hand raised. And because you come to trust God doesn't mean that hardship goes away. God wants you to persevere. And what does persevere mean? It means that he wants you to trust him through this and maintain your attitude of trust to him, your dependency on him through this trial. So we must persevere through hardships. Now, we know Job set a good example, didn't he? Of persevering through hardships. Even though he didn't know what was going on, he persevered in his faith, in his trust of God. I, I like what, what, what God allows us to hear from Job's heart because we see that, one, he's, he's going through. He says, I wish I'd never been born. I wish God would just take me out. I, 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 I wish that I didn't have to experience these things. But he said, yet I trust in him. Even though his wife encouraged him to give up. Now, that's an oxymoron, right? Encourage him to, to be discouraged. Encourage him to give up. <laughs> he said, why don't you just stop, Job? Why don't you just curse God and then it all be over? Even though his wife discouraged him, he didn't give up. He persevered. Even though his friends provided little comfort. You have to get all the way to chapter 42. You find out that Job had family members who finally joined in and comforted him uh, and, and came and visited him, right? And the ones who did comfort or can't come to visit him, weren't very good comforters in what they said. But he persevered. Even though he didn't understand what was going on, he couldn't communicate with God and get specific answers from God. And, you know, that's how we are. 
That, that's what we live. God doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't answer all of our questions. If you're studying the Bible, and I know people who've done this, they, they go, to, go to theology of school, and uh, they, they, they go to seminary, and they want to understand more. I get that. You want to understand, but I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> God ain't going to answer all your questions. He says, trust me, no matter what you're going through. Put your trust in me. So Job is a good example of that. What we also learn here is that self-righteousness is a snare to those who persevere. When we persevere, we are tempted to be self-righteous. And we've got we've to be on guard against that. Job was much like that. Look at chapter 29, verse 1 and 2. Chapter 29, verse 1 and 2. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. Verse 4, as I was in my prime. <laughs> Job went, went back to that back in the day, right? Back in the day, I remember when. Back in the day, you know, I'm getting older now. We're all getting older, actually. But you, you tend to think fondly on the past of how you used to be. As if you were all that, <laughs> if you could tell the story, you were all that when you used to be. Job says back in the day. And then, then look what he says. He gives us some of the details here. Verse 7, start at verse 7 all the way through 17. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. And the aged rose and stood. Well, he said, I used to step into the place and people scattered because they knew who I was, right? And he says, and, 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 and the one who was almost on my level, they just stood up and paid respect. Verse 9, the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voices of the nobles were hushed and their tongues struck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed. When I saw it, it approved. I, I kind of imagine this is a rap, you know. <laughs> can, can you get it? I mean, he's just going on and on and on about himself. He's bringing it on real heavy. Verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. The fatherless had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him who, who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, made him drop his prey from his teeth. <laughs> Job was something else. If you listen to his story, right? <laughs> it's easy to become self-righteous. To see ourselves, think of ourselves higher than we ought to. Because we suffer. Because we're going through something. You know, we want everybody to stop and pay attention. It's almost like the little kid, right? Mama, I got to hurt. What is it? I'm bleeding. Go get a Band-Aid, right? We, we want that attention. Oh, 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 that, that's terrible. And it might be terrible, but we got to be careful of what we bring on to ourselves. This is self-pity, but it's a self-righteousness as well. I'm better than you because I've gone through more and I persevered. Remember, you're a human being under God's grace as well. Job had to be reminded of that. And then the fourth thing I want to focus and close on, what does the book of Job teach us about Christ? And he say, now, the name of Jesus isn't mentioned all through the book of Job. This is an Old Testament book. But if you know the Bible, you know all of God's word points to God's Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in what ways does Job point to the Savior? Let's just mention a few. One, 
Jesus Christ is the arbiter that Job longs for. In chapter 9, verse 32, he says this. He's, when he's thinking about meeting with God and challenging God on what's happening in his life and saying to God, you know, I have not sinned and, and I know you, you can't be punishing me for that. Verse 32, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He said, I need a go-between. If, if I'm going to have a relationship with God, I need somebody who can represent me and stand on the same level as God because I'm not on his level. But I got nobody like that to represent. Job longs for the arbitrator that, arbiter that Jesus is. Jesus the God-man who stands on equal footing with God represents all who would trust in him before God. He says, in essence, Father, these have sinned and they are sinners, but my blood pays for them. And I know, Father, you accept my payment. Therefore, these are mine and they are saved. Jesus is that go-between. There's none other. Job pictures, he longs for that type of a go-between. One that speaks to God on his behalf, and one that relates well to human suffering. Hebrews makes the point that this Savior of ours, who's Jesus, is a man as well, and he has suffered as a human being. He relates to our life circumstances, and we need that. We need somebody who knows what it feels like to be human, and Jesus is that. Notice on Job chapter 12, verse 5. Job makes a statement. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. What Job is saying is it's like, if you ain't experienced this kind of stuff before, you don't think much of it. But if you've gone through some mess, you, you got a little bit more sensitivity to what I'm going through. Jesus has great sensitivity to the effect of sin on his people. Jesus has great sensitivity to the hardship and the trial and the suffering that sin brings. In chapter 10, verse 2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the design of the wicked? Job is saying, I'd like to express myself to God, but I have no way of coming on his level and speaking face to face with him. Jesus is that one and only go-between, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is pictured by Job, the book of Job, as the perfect Righteous one. You know, people today want to really jump on a cause. We have an individual who was the result of injustice, whose life was taken. And people jump on that cause, and, 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 and they, they like that, the face of a cause or the picture of a cause. But we have one perfect who was perfect and righteous and sinless, didn't have a track record, didn't have a criminal record, had never done a single sin, who suffered wrongly. That's Jesus. See, Job couldn't say, I can stand before God and say, I've never sinned. But Jesus could. Jesus never sinned, and yet, 
He suffered as a sinner, as a vile, wicked murderer. He was put to death. Those charges were not true against him. He was falsely charged, falsely condemned, and put to death. There is none on that level. None, absolutely none. Jesus and Jesus alone. Did anybody protest at his crucifixion? Did anybody march up and down the streets and parade up and down and demand justice for him? Did the whole culture change and respond to that because of how he stood for you and for me as sin for us? And he did it willingly. Oh, don't get me wrong. We see injustices today, and we ought to react and respond to them, but there is none on the level of Jesus Christ because he was perfectly righteous for one. And secondly, he did it in your place and my place so that we would be free from the penalty of sin. None qualified to do that and none could pull it off. Jesus and Jesus alone deserves our recognition, our worship, our praise, and our lives. Jesus is the cause that we give ourselves to, and none other. Jesus and Jesus alone. He's pictured in here because Job suffered, but not as the perfectly righteous. Jesus is the one. I want you to also see something this. Jesus Christ is the perfect righteous one who suffered as God's instrument to foil Satan. Look what happened to Job. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he, he had Job go through suffering so that Satan might be foiled in his, in his words of saying, hey, if I do this to him, he surely will deny you. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice that God used as an instrument to foil Satan's scheme because Satan would see that all humanity would be judged by sin but Jesus took the sin upon himself so that those who trust in him will be saved and Satan's scheme will be ruined there are millions I would think of people throughout all the generations who have looked to Christ and are saved, and Satan can't touch them. <laughs> he can't do anything against them in their eternity. They are secure because of Jesus Christ. He's the instrument used by God. Jesus Christ gives purpose to life. In Job 14, 14, let me just read it. It says, if a man dies, shall he live again? Job looked forward to resurrection. And because of Jesus, we can look forward to resurrection. He gives us purpose in this life in living. I find no greater purpose than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What about you? Are you living for something less than Jesus? I would charge you, challenge you to raise it up. Live for Jesus. There's no greater person, no greater cause than for you to live for it. And here's the last thing. Jesus gives purpose to suffering. He gives purpose to suffering. One of the challenges that we have faced when we suffer is, why am I going through this? Is there any good that's going to come out of this? Jesus gives purpose to suffering. He suffered so that you and I will be free from eternal judgment of sin. He suffered so that we would be free, that we would have relationship with God. His suffering provided salvation for us. Our suffering simply mimics his, mirrors his. And we say because his suffering was purposeful, I can go through anything. It's, it's a purpose 
in God's suffering for my life, to build my life, to be a witness to him, and also to, to shame Satan. It's a purpose in all that because of what Jesus has done. I urge you, don't miss the picture of Jesus in Job. And let that be the call to come to worship him, to trust in him. Some people think that when you come and you trust in Christ, all your questions are answered and you no longer have any issues or trials. Job says, hey, that's not the case. But I can say through it all, I still trust God, I love God, and I look for his salvation. That's where you need to be today, to trust fully God and his salvation. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Choir, would you prepare now for our song? And as they come, would you consider what you've learned from, from Job and how, to, how it ought to affect your faith and your walk, your trust, and your daily living? As I challenge you to do that, would you bow your heads in a word of prayer? Our choir will close things out in a song. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you would just speak to our hearts through your truth. We pray that those who need to trust Christ as Lord and Savior would bow down right now, confess their sin, and just praise you for your plan to make it possible for Jesus to pay for our sin. I pray, Lord, that we'll see Job as an example of how we can persevere in our um, going through our struggles, our trials, our hardships, our suffering, we can glorify you in how we do it. We can bring glory to you in the way that we do it. I pray that we'll learn, continue to learn things from Job that you would have us to learn about you, about ourselves, about how we interact with others, and about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who's modeled in Job by Job. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.